Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand. I'm a novelist and the pastor of Grace. And I'm your fellow commenter, Cameron Brooks. I'm an aspiring poet and a professional pencil pusher. If you are an aspiring poet, there's no hope for the rest of us. Uh, I'm always telling Cameron, no, you are a poet. You're an accomplished (laughs) poet, and he's going to believe it one of these days. One day. One day. Um, in this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. Occasionally, we like to comment on things that are happening in sermon series at the church. And for those who attend Grace regularly, you'll know we have just begun over the last couple of weeks the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. And in order to get through this teaching of Jesus, which involves a lot of really prophetic language, talking about um, the, the coming end of Jerusalem and the temple, but also the ultimate end of the age. Um, we've had to put our prophecy hats on and, and, and talk a little bit about how to interpret prophecy. And so in this episode, we thought it might be helpful to try to talk about prophecy, especially from the point of view of people who aren't into prophecy. Because Cameron, as you know, there are some people who are really into prophecy, and for them, this stuff is really easy. Uh, they like to argue with one another, and they may not agree, but, but they have a passion for it, and it drives them. But for a lot of people, uh, it's just not that way. Uh, they're just not obsessed. <laughs> And yet we all want to know, like, what what does the Bible teach and what does it mean for me? And so I think it's really important to be able to talk about the the value of prophecy for people who are not going to be, uh, let's say, prophecy buffs as much as as a few enthusiasts are. Well, I confess, I count myself among that latter group you've mentioned, which is not to say that I want to downplay any section of scripture, of course, but only that when I get to those kinds of prophetic passages and then I start to read in my study Bible, for example, all of the different possible interpretations, I kind of don't know what to think. Right. I, I didn't grow up in a tradition that emphasized the many different theories of eschatology. Mm-hmm. It was kind of, I don't know, it just, we didn't talk about it that much. So I could certainly use some help to focus my mind on the essentials in these chapters and don't want to get lost in the granular specifics. Right. So lead the way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one thing that's important for everyone to understand, and and this is a good starting point is that a lot of the stuff that people talk about and argue over when it comes to the interpretation of prophecy and the end times and that sort of thing is, is not really necessary to be certain about. Mm-hmm. The stuff that I, I would say is important to be certain about is what is uh, distilled for us in the Confession of Faith. So if you go right to the end of the Westminster Confession of Faith and you take a look at chapters 32 and 33, you have the, the Confession's teaching, or let's say the summary of the Bible's teaching, on what happens after we die, on the resurrection, and final judgment, you know, second coming, and, and all of those themes. And so I say this, the stuff that's really important is the big framework. And that big framework involves 
Jesus is coming again. That's the second coming. When Jesus comes again, there is a resurrection of the dead. The dead are uh, reunited, soul and body reunited, and then there's a final judgment. And after that final judgment is the new creation uh, where Christ's people go to live for eternity with him in this new creation. That's the broad outline of what the Bible teaches about eschatology. That's the important stuff to understand. You'll often hear people arguing over, um, let's say, minutia of fulfillment, uh, what historical events will take place in, in what sequence, that sort of thing. And I'm going to say, again, from just a broad brush, uh, let's just focus on the big picture thing, that, that those things are interesting, but they're not necessary to know about or certainly to confess, yeah. right? It, it's This is one of those areas where it is very important to have the big picture and you don't have to go too much into the weeds if that's not your thing. <laughs> uh, so in my first sermon on the Olivet Discourse, what I tried to do was come up with some metaphors because I think if you have a good analogy to explain sort of what prophecy is meant to be, then how to interpret it follows naturally. And so maybe it would be helpful to just talk through the metaphors and see how they would influence how we might interpret some of this prophecy. Yeah, um, I suggested that prophecy is a picture. And it's not the kind of picture a lot of people think it is. So the kind of picture prophecy is not is like a big high-res image that you can zoom in on infinitely, and the closer in you get, the more you discover. Mm-hmm. Instead, the kind of image prophecy is is more like an impressionist painting. Um, so if you're not familiar with impressionism, this is a 19th century movement where... I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like modern art, but it's, it's modern art before it got really odd, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so impressionist paintings are modern art, but they're modern art that people put on their dorm room walls and things like that. So you think of Monet and Manet and, um, Renoir, Mm -hmm. you know, these, these sort of famous, very, um, almost kind of a little bit fuzzy looking, but very, at least subjectively true images of how these things might appear to the eye, usually, you know, water lilies or, you know, some other scene from nature, uh, ships on the water or whatever. And the thing that's interesting about these paintings is that they make perfect sense to the eye from the right distance. But if you zoom in too much, all you're going to see is like the brush strokes, right? You're just going to see the devices that are used to create the impression So you have to be standing at the right distance to see. So the reason I think that's the right metaphor for prophecy is that the prophecy that we can learn the most from in the Bible is prophecy that has been completely fulfilled, Mm -hmm. right? So where we have prophecy that is given in the Old Testament and then is fulfilled in Christ and the New Testament authors tell us this is what that prophecy pointed to. So we now know like, like the life cycle of that prophecy from beginning to end, and we can look at it and see how it works. And two things on this that are helpful, like how it works. First of all, 
it doesn't work the way people who read it at the beginning might have thought. Yeah. Right. It's, it's very common for a New Testament author, a gospel writer, to quote some prophecy from the Old Testament and say, ah, and this was fulfilled. And then you go back to the Old Testament and you read the context and you're like, well, I, I don't think anybody reading this would have thought that was exactly the fulfillment of it. Yeah. Right. So it really isn't until it's all fulfilled and then someone can tell you authoritatively, this is it, that you can say for certain, we got it. Right. You can easily see how a lot of those prophecies could have been interpreted differently. Mm-hmm. So, when you see that about these examples, it probably should give you some humility when it comes to trying to interpret unfulfilled prophecy. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. If, if you wouldn't have been able to call it right in the old Testament, maybe you need to be careful mm-hmm. about being confident about your calls in this. Yeah. You know, no, that's, that's helpful. I know the point that you made on Sunday was that, some prophecies anyway, maybe all have two, can have multiple layers of fulfillment too. So when we look at, for example, Old Testament prophecies of Emmanuel, Mm -hmm. they, some passages seem to point directly to Christ. Others, not so much. And you said that there very well could have been an Old Testament fulfillment but not the ultimate fulfillment because the ultimate fulfillment comes later on right. in, in Jesus. And that complicates it a little bit more too. Yes. I mean, some of these prophecies are almost like another metaphor, but like a stone skipping across the water, you mm. know, and it hits several times. Um, like a really oversimplified view would be what I tried to present where I said, basically prophecy will tend to have two levels of meaning, like an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. And so the Emmanuel prophecy is a good example of that because in context, King Ahaz is putting his trust in the Syrians and he shouldn't, and he needs to put his trust in God. And he asks for a sign uh, so that he can have confidence. And the sign that ultimately that, that he's given is the sign of Emmanuel. And a son is going to be born, and this son is going to do these great things, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of this prophecy is quoted for us every Advent, right? We go back to this messianic prophecy. It's in Handel's Messiah. Mm-hmm. We sing this. But if you go back and read it, you see, like, not all of it fits easily with, with, with uh, identification with Jesus, there's some little bits of it that don't don't seem like they fit right. And the reason they don't is that there is another son in the mix here, and it's the son of Ahaz who gets the sign, Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah is a son who comes, becomes king, and, and puts things right. And so he, in part, is the fulfillment of this prophecy. But then by the same token, you go back and you read it and you say, well, there's nobody in the reign of Hezekiah who would have said, yeah, he's the guy. He has checked off all the boxes, mm-hmm. right? So there's still an aspect of this that, that, that remains to be fulfilled, that messianic aspect. So um, the, the thing that's instructive is if you go back and read, there, the, the near fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment are not easily delineated, 
You know, it's not like there's one section that's for what's about to happen and one section that's for what's not going to happen for 2000 years or, you know, whatever it is, it's right on top of each other. And again, like that impressionist painting, it's, it, if you're really close to it, it all looks the same. It's when you stand back that you see the, the objects in relationship to one another. Um, Now I'm not saying interpreting prophecy is as easy as realizing there are going to be two hits mm-hmm. and, and one is near and one is far and you just have to disambiguate them. It can be much more complex than that, but it gives you a sense, right? And especially for the Olivet Discourse, as we're going through Matthew 24 and 25, it's helpful because there are two events that are key. One of them is the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and that's a near fulfillment. It happens within a generation of Jesus's words. And then you also have the second coming of Christ, the end of our age, being talked about as well. And as you go through Matthew 24 and 25, those two things are not easy to, to pick apart. Now, I've read commentaries that, that treat them as if they are. Hmm. You know, and there are people who will say, well, verse this to this is referring to Jerusalem's destruction. But starting in this verse, it's referring to the second coming. And I go back and I'm like, well, kind of. It feels a little more overlapping, a little more complex than that. Yeah. But once you've cut your teeth in those earlier prophecies, then you can kind of see the sense of how Jesus is speaking here. And it it makes it makes it easier, right? You're you're not um, running into some of the problems that people often do. Uh, probably the the typical one being thinking it must be either AD 70 or the second coming mm. that's being referred to, but cannot be both. both. Right. Yeah. Or, or there's the alternative view, sometimes called the full preterist view, right? That all of it is just referring to proximate right. predictions. Exactly. That none of this is talking about the future judgment or some some eschatological event, but it's all going to happen. It's all imminent, so to speak. And clearly that's not the view that you're taking, but that isn't kind of an easy way out of some of the difficulties that we're going to encounter to just say like, oh yeah, all of that, that happened back in like 70-ish AD, back right. in the first century, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, and so, right. And, and I think that, I don't want to say like, like, Everybody who has 100% certainty on this stuff is taking an easy way out. But in, in one sense, that's true, right? That, that the having a really definitive approach does tend to have that benefit, right? That, yeah. that uh, this, this helps me out. But again, I think, you know, this, what we're talking about here is not a, a like a final interpretation of the passage. This, I almost want to say is like a, a pre-interpretation, right? You could take what I'm saying and then go deeper with it Mm -hmm. and really fine tune your interpretation, but you don't have to. Like if you take what we're saying now and, and your kind of big picture understanding is, ah, Jesus is telling us about two events. One of them is the end of the age he's presently in, that Levitical order, that's going to conclude with the destruction of the temple. But the other end of the age he's talking about is the end of the age that we are in, and that's going to conclude with his return. Mm-hmm. 
and there it's not the physical temple, but the spiritual temple uh, of his body, his people that matters. If that's as much as you comprehend, I think you, you're still getting uh, what Jesus is saying. Because the thing about the Olivet Discourse is the lessons of the Olivet Discourse are not the prophetic utterances. The prophetic utterances are given as backstops to the lessons. What I mean is Jesus is teaching things like, uh, don't be anxious, uh, be watchful, be ready. Uh, when people try to mislead you, don't listen to them. When things start going bad, don't think that you need a different savior. Those are the lessons mm-hmm. of this passage. And, and if you learn those things, then I'm not sure you need to go down into the granular level on the interpretation of the prophetic aspect. Right, because Jesus is equipping you for no matter what happens, right? And He's telling you you won't know the timing of these things, you won't be able to predict them. But the point is to be ready. And so, what I want to do with this sort of impressionist eschatology is just as a, a, a let's say an entry level into the topic, focus on the lessons that eschatology is teaching not the interpretations of the eschatological data yeah. so much, if that makes sense. Yeah. As one wise teacher put it, prophecy is less about prediction than preparation. That does sound pretty good. <laughs> I think that's exactly right, even though I did say it. You know, that, that um, even though. it is the, you know, th- these things are being shared for a reason. The, the disciples here, the temple's going to be destroyed. They want to know, when is that going to happen? What, what are the signs? Jesus does answer that question. But the thing he's telling them is essentially, like, like don't, don't lose your faith when this stuff goes down. Yeah. You know, don't be confused when this starts to happen. When you're persecuted, when uh, people leave the church, when people stop loving each other, when... Um, apostasy runs rampant, uh, all of these things are going to make you think this isn't working. But don't lose hope. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, like we have forgotten a little bit of the history, but, but all of that stuff does happen in their lifetimes. You know, the, the destruction of the temple doesn't come out of nowhere, right? The, the land is looking for deliverance, Uh, The spiritual kingdom that Jesus proclaims is not satisfying to people. They're still looking for other messiahs to come. And there is ultimately a political uprising whose aim is to throw out the Romans and and, and set up a kingdom. And that leads to the Romans destroying the temple. And so, in a sense, where we've seen in Matthew's gospel, Jesus resisting that urge to take political power and refocusing people on the spiritual kingdom. Uh, what happens afterwards is like most people are like, no, thanks. <laughs> I, I still want the political thing. And that wish is granted for a season and ultimately leads to the destruction of the whole order. And so when that happens, the disciples have been forewarned. Right. It's coming. Like when everybody else is turning to these new leaders, 
the disciples already know, oh, these are not the real Messiah. These are not the people we should follow, right? So, mm-hmm. so if, you, if you think about it that way, you realize, oh, there's a, there is a reason why Jesus is teaching this stuff, but it's not because there's a puzzle and we need to solve it. It's because we need to be prepared because things are going to happen that, that have the potential to shake us, and instead we want to be faithful. Well, I'm excited for the road ahead more than I probably would have been without this conversation. So <laughs> well, good, good. Yeah, I, I appreciate the preparation. Yeah. And can I end with a story Absolutely. Re- related to this? Yeah, I, I just yeah. thought of something. So, you know, a few weeks ago, I flew out to California for this new job mm-hmm. that I got with Blackwing, this pencil company. That's why I'm a pencil pusher now. And I flew into Sacramento, but had to take a Uber down to Stockton where our headquarters is located. And I got, I'd never taken an Uber that long before. It was like Mm. an hour drive. And so I thought, well, I should talk with this driver. I mean, this is boring. What, you know, what else are you going to do for an hour? So I started a conversation with my cab driver. I can't remember his name now, unfortunately, but I told him I was going to work at this pencil company and he goes, Oh, he, he said, pencils are really, really important. And he was a Hispanic man. I learned he was, uh, from Mexico. He had mm. immigrated to California and, and I was like, pencils are really important. And he said, yeah, we couldn't have, we couldn't have written the Bible without pencils. I think he said <laughs> <laughs> or so, something along those lines. Uh-huh. Like he brought up the Bible and I, and I said, oh, yeah, do you read the Bible? And he said, yes, I do. And I asked, are you a Christian? He says, yes, I am. And then he asked me, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I am. So, so then we had this nice, you know, 35-minute yeah, conversation yeah. about our faith. And we were, we were exchanging joys. He, was, he started essentially giving me his testimony, mm-hmm. how he went from homelessness to finding Christ to getting married and then raising this family and, and joining a church now. And it was really cool. And as we were pulling into Stockton, we were at a stoplight and he asked me, so what do you think of the end times? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, Oh boy, here we go. And, and I, and I was like, well, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> what, what do I think about the end times? And he started talking about China and uh, technology yes, and yes. chips and, and the book of revelation and how it predicted all of these specific things. And I, I just didn't know what to do with any of it. Mm. And, and thankfully we were just a few minutes from my destination. Sure. So we wrapped up the conversation and I just kind of shrugged it off and said, well, I'm not really sure what to make of it all, but you know, thanks for sharing your testimony with me mm. and God bless you. And it was funny, but I'm thinking back to what you said at the start, like, keeping the grand picture of eschatology in mind makes it okay to have that kind of a conversation. I wasn't like, Oh no, this guy is like insincere all of a sudden because he's talking about these, this crazy to me, what sounds crazy stuff. But I didn't, I didn't really have an opinion on a lot of the stuff he was saying and it sounded kind of foreign to me. And I Mm -hmm. think it's getting at these really niche interpretations of revelation that try to map onto current events Yes. Biblical apocalypse kind of a stuff. Anyway, so that's that's just kind of a recent example of why I think, like you said towards the start, it's okay to not have 
too definite of opinions. And maybe I should know more about some of this stuff, but I felt fine leaving that conversation saying like, we still connected in a meaningful way, even though I didn't know what to say about the end times. Right, right. And I think that is a, a really beautiful thing to draw away from it because if, if there's one thing that frustrates me about a lot of those conversations is the way they do have the potential to divide us, right? That, yeah, yeah. that, that it, it's way too easy to, to choose sides in schools of interpretation on things that we cannot possibly know for certain until Christ comes again. And so being able to, to be at peace with what we know and what we don't know yeah. and, and to remain in fellowship with one another is such a beautiful thing. Thanks for listening to The Commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. And you can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.